2: Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the July 5th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974, striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S communities. I'm David Hunt in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome. Tonight is a mixed bag of stories from folk who have made major contributions to the story of our tribe, from Quentin Crisp to Jewel Thias Williams. With side servings from the Radical Fairies and the OE Improv team. But we start with this. Dan Matthews is quitting PETA. He writes The pandemic made me realize, as the AIDS era did, that life can stop on a dime. If I don't make this move now, I never will. PETA is in very good hands, and the vegan revolution is now unstoppable. Once upon a time, Steve Pride sat down with the animal rights stalwart and filed this report. (laughs)
3: Love it or hate it, mentioning PETA, people for the ethical treatment of animals, is unavoidable when talking about animal rights. And that's largely due to the efforts of Dan Matthews, the six foot five, former fashion model, whose first job was flipping burgers at his dad's restaurant, joined PETA in 1985 answering their phones, and today is senior vice president and director of their controversial
4: publicity campaigns. I think a lot of people burn out with causes, whether it's gay causes or animal causes or any cause, if they don't lighten up a little bit. All the information can be such an overload, it can be so dire, and a lot of people become morose because of it. I've always sought to organize campaigns that are much more exuberant and fun, things like the... Rather Go Naked Than Wear a Fur campaign, things like the Fur is a Drag campaign, which has involved everyone from Lady Bunny and Boy George to Katie Lang actually dressing as a girl. And I've always thought that campaigns should be fun, because the whole point is to try to attract more people, not just their support, but to make them feel like they should learn more about an issue, because the information about animal cruelty is just so overwhelming. There's issues like animals being blinded and scalded in laboratories and electrocuted and drowned on fur farms. And That outrage is why I got involved in animal rights, but to try to attract other people. I think it's best to be fun. You know, I grew up really in a white trash area and started looking after animals at a very young age, but I had a mother who was an orphan and she never really had any guidance about what was right or wrong in life. So she just sort of made things up as she went along. And of course, her instincts are a lot more progressive than most people's. She always urged me and my brothers to consider being gay. She thought there was something extra special about that. And it's odd that I'm the only one who actually became gay or the only one who was gay. It's certainly a definitive argument about whether it's environmental or not. It's not, it's just who you are. Like if your eyes are brown or blue.
3: And the seed that grew into the empathy that defines Dan's adult life was planted in that childhood.
4: To me, it just seemed like cruelty was cruelty. And the kind of people who are cruel were the same guys who used to beat me up for being gay. And so I always saw from a very young age that animals needed help. They needed somebody to interfere on their behalf. It's easy to forget that back in the day, this was not a cool cause. When I first got involved in animal rights in the late 70s, it was something associated with Doris Day or Betty White. It was like a granny cause. The first few protests I went to, it was me and a few of my punk rock friends and a bunch of grannies. It was like Lawrence Welk meets the Sex Pistols on the streets. Um, And there was no media to speak of really at these early things so being from the pop culture mtv generation i always really could recognize the value in getting more artists involved and getting celebrities involved to help attract attention so that it wouldn't just be thought of as some kooky old lady cause yeah making it sexy making it funny you know like coming up with a whole rather go naked than wear a fur campaign which really put PETA on the map all around the world
3: Matthews believes that animal rights is a cause especially relevant to our
4: community. There's always been a huge crossover with gays and lesbians and animal rights. First off, our spokespeople have included people like everybody from Boy George and Melissa Etheridge to Lady Bunny and uh, Morrissey and bands like Erasure, Sandra Bernhard, Martina Navratilova remains one of our biggest spokespeople. I think it's because gays grow up in a world where they know a lot of people look down at them or consider their suffering or their plight irrelevant. And I think a lot of people act like that about animals. They think it's just an animal. Who cares if they're suffering? My sufferings more important. And I think when people hear that attitude about animals, especially gays, it hits home with them because they realize that these animals just want to survive. They just want to get by. They have good times, they have bad times, and they don't need these people basically ruining their lives, taking away their nature and being so disrespectful about their lives. And so I think that's one of the reasons why gays often feel like outsiders and animals are sort of the ultimate outsiders.
3: Besides promising not to wear a coat made of Dalmatian puppies,
4: what can an individual do? I think the most important things people can do is to learn more about the issue. We have a really great website, PETA.org, which documents not only a lot of our crazy campaigns but a lot of the real issues behind them and to educate yourself we believe in freedom of choice you should be able to eat what you want and wear what you want it should just be an educated choice and i think learning about these issues and being open to the idea of becoming a vegetarian or looking for alternatives to leather which do exist and to realize that you can have a great life without killing
3: this has been a conversation with dan matthews senior vice president of peta people for the ethical treatment of animals and the author of Committed, a rabble-rousers memoir. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. If we could
5: talk to the animals, learn their languages, maybe take an animal degree. i study elephants and eagles, buffalo.
2: Steve Pride met Quentin Crisp in the 1980s when they were both performing off-Broadway and became unlikely friends. Decades later, when Crisp was appearing in Palm Springs, he had someone drive him to LA for a reunion.
6: With his hinted hair, gravity-defying makeup, and inch-long fingernails, the young Quentin Crisp must have cut a brave and audacious figure in 1930s London, as he still does today on the streets of New York.
5: I coffee, I take tea, my dear. I like my toast on one side. But you can hear it in my accent when I talk. I'm an Englishman in New York.
6: Quinton Crisp is the author of Resident Alien, The New York Diaries. How to Become a Virgin, The Wit and Wisdom of quentin Crisp how to have a lifestyle and the naked civil servant which was made into a film starring John Hurt. Mr. Crisp himself played Queen Elizabeth in Sally Porter's film Orlando, was Sting's sidekick in the horror film The Bride and stars in the upcoming independent film Homo Heights. He is one of the English speaking world's most visible homosexuals and a man renowned for rarely turning down a party invitation. Welcome to Los Angeles, Mr. Crisp. Thank you. I'll start off with a very indelicate question. May I ask your age?
7: I'm 89. I shall be 90 on Christmas Day this year. So you were born in? 1908. You were born
6: near the beginning of a century that we are quickly approaching the end of. Tell me a little bit about
7: your childhood. Well, I was born in the suburbs of London, and my parents only knew people like themselves. Not deliberately, but because they couldn't know anybody else. There was nobody around. If my parents had lived in London, their attitude toward my peculiarities would have been different, because they would have seen more unusual people. But as they only saw suburban people, I was a terrible shock. When did you know that you were gay? Well, of course, I never heard the word gay. I never heard the word homosexual until I was about 18 or 19 but I knew I was different. I never came out because I was never in. I was swanning about the house, dressed in clothes that I'd found in an attic, belonging to my mother or my grandmother, saying, today I am a beautiful princess. I don't know what my parents thought, but I didn't know any different.
6: In many ways, you came of age in a time and a place where to be homosexual
7: was to experience extreme isolation. Was it lonely there? It was lonely, and when you see the television play of The Naked Civil Servant, what you see above everything else is what it's like to be the one among the many. The only thing the film didn't show you was the crowds, because people followed me in London So the traffic couldn't get by, and a policeman would fight his way through the crowd and say, oh, it's you again. Then he'd turn to the crowd and say, go home. It's nobody. It's nothing. And they'd disperse. You didn't frighten the horses, did you? I didn't frighten the horses, but I frightened everybody else. What did you think of John Hurt's betrayal of you? I thought it was miraculous because John Hurt only met me twice before he began to make the program. And he had imitated my voice, absolutely. But he's born to play victims. It's very difficult for an actor to play a victim because they've fought so hard to get there. And then they have to backpedal and be a victim of fate. And when he played me, he played Caligula, which was only me in a sheet. And then he played the elephant man, which was only me with a paper bag over my head. And finally he played the ultimate victim in 1984. Have you ever seen it? The most depressing film ever made. You had a very diverse record of employment in your early years. Well, you see, that was the problem. What was I to do? So when I went out into the cold world, I wrote books, I illustrated books and did book covers, I taught tap dancing, I was a model in the art schools. I never had any ability for any of these things, but what else could I do? Because it may be true that artists adopt a flamboyant appearance, but it's also true that people who look funny get stuck with the arts, that happened to me. How would you characterize your current career? Well, now, of course, I'm in the smiling and nodding racket. You can do that in New York. I have never had employment in all the time I've lived here. I've lived in America for nearly 18 years, and I've never worked. You were 74 years of age when you first came to America. Why did you decide to leave England? I left England because I could. People have said, if you're so mad about America, why didn't you come here sooner? And I say, I couldn't pay my fare, and everyone laughs nervously, but I mean it. I earned £12 a week in England. There was plenty to live on. I never felt constrained by my poverty. But it would be $25 here. It would go nowhere. So I came when I was invited to come by Mr. Bennett who wanted to make my life story into a musical, which I would have loved. But my agent said it was not to be, and it was never done.
6: I read that you still live in the same room
7: in New York that you first settled in. Is that true? That's true. I lived for six weeks in unaccustomed splendor on 39th Street with a man who constituted himself my manager. And then the room I have now was found for me and by someone who knew someone who knew the landlord and I've lived there ever since. I've always lived in one room because I never found out what people did with the room they're not in.
6: Reading your books, I notice you seem to have an opinion or an observation on any number of subjects. Let's cover a few of them, starting with the obvious, sex.
7: Well, sex seems to be everywhere. Of course, I was on Dr. Westheimer's program, and she said, and now we have Mr. Chris with us, who has opinions about everything. What do you think about sex? And I said, it's a mistake. And she said, why do you say that? But she didn't seem to understand. I come from a world when we didn't know that sex was here to stay. We thought if no one talked about it, it might go away. And she said, you were wrong. With great conviction, but with no proof, because no one ever has stopped talking about it. And if they did, it might go away. And wouldn't that be wonderful?
6: what about the state of the gay community today?
7: Well, the gay community, of course, is very angry with me because I am not a marcher and a protester. But I have pointed out to them that anger begets anger. That's an unalterable law. If you shake your fist in the face of real people, they will shake their fist in your face. You can't fight for integration You're in the same position as a woman who says, do you really love me? And you know where that gets you. The answer to that is, okay, I love you, now shut up and lie down. That's no use. You can only be integrated by waiting. When you say, I'm gay, and people say, and then? Then you're integrated. Not when they say, oh, very well, don't hit me, you're integrated, (laughs) that's useless. But you can't explain that to people.
6: What do you think of the models of masculinity in today's gay community?
7: Well, of course, no one went to a gymnasium when I was young. If you'd said, I can't come to you on Wednesday, I'm in the gymnasium, people would have said, what for? Only athletes and dancers went to a gymnasium. But now everyone wants to be... Um, I think manly. I think you feel more manly if you have muscles bulging out of everywhere. And I went to Boston to judge the most beautiful man in the world. And I went with apprehension because when I was first here, I was asked by a kinky magazine called Blue Boy to judge the most beautiful man in the world. And a young man, a reedy, seedy young man with blonde hair and blue eyes, who smiled a lot, won. And I thought, this is no good, they just want it cute. I'm an enemy of the cute. But in Boston, I went into a place called the Safari Club, which I thought would mean sinners in solar topies, but it was sinners in bath towels. And they had taken the competition so seriously that they were shaved all over and then held before the sun lamp like chickens to get them the same color all over. And they were wonderful, absolutely wonderful.
6: Well, we sort of know you stand on
7: on gay men. What about lesbians? I don't think I know any lesbians. Lesbians are rather frightening. You see, gay men want to be happy. Lesbians want to be right. And it makes them a bit formidable. Years ago, Boy
6: George wrote a review of Resident Alien, and he said that Quentin Crisp was a queer Jesus for the 20th century. His cross was pink and massive, and he suffered persecution on a daily basis. Do you consider yourself
7: an icon?: Well, you see, I've become an icon, but really I was just a hopeless case. I couldn't do other than I did. If I'd tried to disguise myself as a human being, people would have said, "Who does she think she is?" So it was hopeless, so I went on the only way I knew how.
8: I
6: Quentin Crisp claims to be just another victim at the mercy of the world, except his solution was to embrace what others perceive as failure and wear it as a badge of honor, paying his way through life with modesty, charm, and wit. Among other things, Mr. Crisp is the author of The Naked Civil Servant and Resident Alien. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
2: Quinton Crisp died at 90 in 1999, a few months after our interview. Stay put. We'll be right back after this quick break.
0: Philadelphia police raid Rusty's, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The most popular lesbian bar in Philadelphia during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s was Rusty's, managed by butch lesbian Rusty Parisi. One would enter the bar through a side door on Quince Street, which led to a flight of stairs. On the night of March 8, 1968, Rusty's bar patrons were alarmed when the jukebox music died and house lights were turned up. The Philadelphia police, under the leadership of then-Police Commissioner Frank Rizzo, were raiding the place. Gay and lesbian bar raids were commonplace in the city. In this case, lesbians were verbally abused. Some were booked, held overnight, and were brought before the magistrate the next day. A small group of lesbians met with a Philadelphia police inspector. This Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Laura Wesselowski, in Philadelphia.
9: Hello, this is the actor Michael Emerson. It's not easy being one of the others. So if time travel or moving the island isn't an option and you're feeling sort of lost, try listening to IMRU.
2: Welcome back. I'm David Hunt and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. The Radical Fairies hold a special place in LGBTQ plus history. Charlie Lang reports.
1: I'm Charlie Lang, and this evening I'm pleased to have Don Kilhefner and Mark Thompson with me.
2: We cast a sacred circle in fairy love. We
1: cast a sacred circle in fairy love. We cast a sacred circle in fairy love. We cast a sacred circle. How did the radical fairies come into being? Back in 1978, Harry Hay and I met out in San Juan
10: Pueblo, New Mexico, where he was living. And both of us were concerned about the direction that the gay liberation movement was taking. It was becoming more bourgeois. It was becoming more conventional politics. uh, It was becoming more gay assimilationist. And we felt that there was a need for something in the movement at that time that deepened our understanding of gay consciousness and gay spirituality. And so the radical fairies
1: came out of that kind of understanding. I noticed on the poster from the original gathering that it was called actually a spiritual conference. Can you speak a little bit more to the aspect of spirituality? Well, both Harry and I felt strongly that one of the
10: things that was missing from the movement at that time was an understanding of the purpose of gay people. Why are there gay people? do gay people carry a different consciousness than straight people do? And if that is true, which I think it is, and Harry thought it was, what is our contribution to society from that place of gay spirit, gay consciousness? And so that was woven right into the conference. The subtitle of the conference was, what is the gay dimension of spirituality? What is the spiritual dimension of being gay? Any answers to those questions? Well, Harry has come up with his understanding of what he calls subject-subject consciousness, that one of the ways that we differ from straight people is that we carry a subject-subject consciousness, same with same, while heterosexual carry a subject-object consciousness. And therefore, the way we walk in the world, the way we manifest ourselves in the world will be different. Walt Whitman also came up with there's a difference between gay men that he called adhesive and straight people, which he called amative. Edward Carpenter, an English socialist, one of the great pioneers of gay liberation, came up with the idea that gay people play certain kinds of social roles in society. Evolutionary biologists are telling us the same thing. E.O. Wilson at Harvard is saying gay people carry the rare altruistic impulse in our species, et cetera. So there's a lot of accumulating information that says They got it all wrong. We're not a sexual act per se. There's something else that we're doing in society that allows us to remain generation after generation after generation. And the radical fairies were called together for us to begin talking about deepening and broadening what gay liberation was all about.
1: So I'm thinking 1979, long before the advent of online connections of any kind, how did you go about gathering these men? At that time for the first conference. <laughs> well, it was difficult, let me tell you. We, we had to find a place because we wanted a place where it would just
10: be gay men. We didn't want anybody else around. And that's hard to find these days. And we finally ended up at a place out in the Sonora Desert of Arizona, east of Tucson, called the Sri Ram Ashram run by a, a gay man, and Harry and I went out there, scouted it out, and said, yes, this is the place. Uh, it is isolated enough, the nearest neighbors were miles and miles away, it had a pool, it had a commercial kitchen, it had places where people could sleep, that was the place. Then we had to reach people. Yeah. And one of the ways we reached them, thank God for Mark Thompson, Mark came and did an interview with Harry, and during that interview mm-hmm. talked about the gathering, and Mark's article kind of got that out to the rest of the world. And we then also did a a historic leaflet, which also on one side talked about the gathering. On the other side, kind of talked about the purpose of the gathering, why we're calling gay men together.
8: That place had scorpions, too, Don. (laughs) (laughs) And rattlesnakes. And rattlesnakes. (laughs) They
10: didn't tell
1: you about that. No, 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 no. 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 Mark, at the time, you were working at The Advocate, correct? Yes, I was
8: just a young gay man living in San Francisco in 1979. I was 27 years old and had already been working for The Advocate for four years and was doing lots of cover articles. And I was uh, aware of the writings of Edward Carpenter and Harry Hay. From other sources. I felt that I've always been kind of on a spiritual seeker's path. And 1978 was important for a lot of reasons because, of course, that was the, uh, the year that uh, Harvey Milk was, um, you know, put into political office. And it seemed to be a benchmark for our community. And on one level, it was. And on another level, it seemed like nothing was really happening. I mean, we were getting political gains, but I felt very deeply that we gay men were kind of in a stuck place spiritually, that we were still using each other and going about our business in familiar old ways and that we needed a new approach. So uh, when we had the opportunity to fly down and interview Harry, so I did this long interview with Harry about his ideas, these seminal ideas. And at the end of the article, I concluded with all of the information about how you could find this very remote place in the middle of the Arizona desert.
1: So can you give us a little bit of a context, like how many men showed up and from where? About 150 gay men showed up. Wow. And the great thing was they
10: came from all over North America. Every city was represented. Toronto. Vancouver, San Francisco, New Orleans, Miami, and there were two or three ferries from each one of these places. And after the gathering was over, they went back and seeded ferry gatherings in their own cities. So very quickly, the Radical Ferries became a decentralized kind of operation, with ferry gatherings happening almost everywhere.
1: And at the conference, was there a structure, per se, or was it kind of made up as you went along? It was both
10: structured and unstructured. We wanted to, each day had a structure to it, It began with a great fairy circle where we all got together and talked and shared. And then throughout the different days, there were different things that people wanted to do. Somebody wanted to do a workshop on tantric spirituality, gay tantric spirituality. Somebody else wanted to do something on erotic massage around the pool. Somebody wanted to do, and so people brought their gifts to this gathering. And all of those gifts were woven in to the fabric of what the gathering became. Each day also had a focus to it, and by the end of the uh, gathering, there was a great circle called, and a ritual in that great circle, which was created by the people who were at the gathering. It was Mm. not predetermined, but people wove that ceremony together. So it was a very deep, powerful uh, gathering of gay men, where the creativity created the gathering. There was a structure. But yeah. it was a loose structure.
8: I'll never, ever forget that last gathering because there we were in the moonlight during our avocations to the four spirits and to the sky and to the Mother Earth and to each other. And all of a sudden on the outskirts of the, of the circle, we could see this enormous horned bull hmm. just appear as if out of nowhere. Wow. And it just standing there, just looking at us and then just kind of disappearing. Things like this happened all the time. And don't forget the famous mud ritual that happened on the second day. I think it was John Burnside, uh, Harry Hayes' partner, and others said, well, well, all this talk and everything is fine, but we've got all this reddish earth, you know. So they found, like, a little gully not far from the encampment and did a bucket brigade and made this enormous pit of this beautiful, silky mud, and everyone just uh, stripped and adorned themselves with the mud put bits of chaparral on their hair, and just did this big clump of a muddy gay man. <laughs> it was a sight to behold. <laughs> it really was.
1: This is Charlie Lang. I'm speaking with Don Kilhefner and Mark Thompson about the radical fairies. So, Don, have these gatherings continued to occur consistently?
10: Continue to occur around the world. Around all the all world. All over
1: the United States. There are Euro fairies that uh, meet
10: several places several times a year. A residential ferry sanctuary just opened in eastern France
1: a residential fairy sanctuary. So it's not just like a weekend fairy gathering. This is a facility where A place where
10: radical fairies live, farm the land, have a relationship to nature, invite people in for gatherings periodically. And it's a place where a core group of fairies live. And other fairies or other gay men who are in need of some loving care, loving kindness, just getting away from the rush of things can go and stay a week, can stay a month, can stay a year.
1: Don, I'm wondering what relevance do the radical fairies hold for gay men today?
10: I think there are three major ways in which the radical fairies are relevant today. One of them is that they represent progressive politics. We have very little in the way of progressive politics, organized progressive politics in the gay community today. Radical fairies work to increase, to broaden political and social consciousness in our community, supporting liberation movements of women and men, people of color, working people, ordinary people like us, support political candidates that have some kind of integrity and ethics to them so that we're involved in progressive politics. Radical fairies are relevant today because it focuses on gay-centered consciousness. It focuses on those questions of who are we? Not the assimilation into the mainstream, but why are there gay people here? Why haven't gay people gone down the drainpipe of history? What are we contributing to society? So that kind of exploration, which I think young people are hungry for, particularly after the decades of empty calories of right-wing assimilationist politics in our community. And I think a third way that's relevant today is around community building. The Radical Fairies put a great deal of emphasis on creating community, healthy community, community in which we can be openly gay, community in which we honor ancestors, requires elders. uh, There are adults and youth working together, a community that, that has consciousness around the environment, a community that conducts ceremonies and rituals that keeps our community sane and healthy, etc., etc., etc. Those are all questions that I think young people are hungry for today. So I think what we're going to see is a wave of radical fairy consciousness Fantastic. coming into the community. The reality is gay liberation is a revolutionary movement. It wasn't a middle-class law reform movement. It was a revolutionary movement based on liberation. We liberate ourselves. We're not asking for emancipation. We liberate ourselves. And along with that liberation movement came a liberation consciousness, creating a community, creating a reality for us that makes sense to us, not fitting in to that larger community. And the radical fairies are the contemporary extension of that. It probably is the most vibrant grassroots gay effort in the world right now.
1: Well, and on that note, I want to thank you both for uh, your rich conversation. This is Charlie Lang, and I've been speaking with Don Kelhefner and Mark Thompson about the wonderful Radical Fairy Movement in the United States and around the world. Dear friends, queer friends, let me tell you how I am feeling. You have given me such pleasure. I I love you so, dear
11: friends, queer friends, dear let me
7: tell friends, you how I am friends. feeling, you let me have tell given you me how such I pleasure. feel, you have
1: given you so. me such so pleasure, I love you so, I love you so, I love you so, I
2: love you so. I love you so. We'll be back with Jewel Theus Williams after this quick break.
0: Turning the page. Coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. After the famous Philadelphia lesbian bar Rusty's was raided in 1968, and a small group of lesbians from the local chapter of Daughters of Bilitis met with the police, things changed. After discussing continued police harassment, the police said that from then on, gays and lesbians would receive equal treatment. That marked a turning point for the Philadelphia chapter of Daughters of Belitis, and the bylaws of the National Group made that clear. All protests had to be approved by the National Board. But that would prevent a quick response to injustices in Philadelphia, and since they were more interested in action instead of social gatherings, they dissolved the DOB chapter and regrouped as Homophile Action League, or HAL. This group would also include gay men. This Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Laura Wesselowski, in Philadelphia.
6: Yes, it's true. You could have more friends, a better job, more money, and enjoy the kind of life you've always dreamed about. Homosexuals in America are better educated, travel more, and enjoy a higher standard of living than their straight counterparts. If you've ever sat alone watching television on a Saturday night or felt like your life was going nowhere, maybe homosexuality is right for you.
5: Hi, this is Margaret Cho, and you're listening to I Am Are You. I am. All-
2: Welcome back. I'm David Hunt, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Opened in 1973, Jewel's Catch One was considered a radical oasis where queer people of all colors could come and be liberated. As IMRU continues its Summer of Pride 2021, we flash back to a conversation with Jewel Thias Williams about its impact on the history of gay and black gay life in Los Angeles.
12: I'm Abby Dees,
2: And I'm Wenzel Jones.
11: She's sitting directly in front of me. It's Jewel Tice Williams, who was the owner and started up the disco Jewel's Catch One. And that was a disco for gays of color. Am I correct? Uh, well, How do you want for, to put it? <laughs> it was for everyone, but, but in particular. But that's for why you that did it, your plan, Oh, yeah, with, without a doubt. I mean, where did the name come from? I mean, I know jewel. <laughs> the Jewel part, but <laughs> right? Catch One well, what? Catch One was given to
13: me by one of my friends and patrons of the club. It was a saying that gay guys did when they were going out to the bars or to the clubs or to the streets or wherever. And it was all about catching one. (laughs) And uh, so that's how the Catch One came about. The club was named Diana's before it became the Catch One. And it was built and and opened in 1929 as um, the spot to be and, and. the Diana Ballroom was right upstairs. It was much like the Stardust Ball back in the day, and the big bands and Ella Fitzgerald and Nat King those type of performers performed there too, ballroom So bands.
12: many people don't realize that L.A. was really a hot spot for the African-American performers of that era, as big a center in many ways as Harlem was.
13: Uh, yeah, it was. Only we weren't separated here, we were discriminated against here. Very
12: important distinction. Um,
13: but we weren't separated uh, as Harlem or even with Watts and, and other areas that became homes and places where African Americans lived. It wasn't established then. So when I took my vacation my sister and my then girlfriend decided it was time to lose the Diana's parts so they put Jewel on the side of it and ordered Mats to go in front and all oh, with my name on it. You know, much to my chagrin, because it costs money. well it was, was already paid for. So there you go. You got a perfectly Art,
12: good sign. Art
13: deco, <laughs> and you know, it's like, why? <laughs> you know, people used to call
12: you diana I didn't care. Did I mind? No.
11: I know. I'm, my first thought too was, oh, great, new letterhead. We're going to need now.
12: Right. <laughs> okay. And when Pretty was much? this? When so <laughs> put, put us in time. When was this? we opened uh,
11: Diana's Club that later became
13: Jules Room in 1973 and in 1975 I was able to buy the building which of course included the ballroom upstairs so the catch one was officially named that and came in with the opening of the larger space the big ballroom
11: and what prompted you to take ownership of this bar in the first place several things happened
13: one was that I worked as a cashier at a market that was right across the street from the Diana Club. And some of my patrons would come in, African-American, and said, you know, they don't want us over there. We can stop to have a beer in the evening, going home from work and whatever. And so I had, and it was just that, a fleeting thought about one of these days I'll own that place and everybody will be able to come. I wasn't a bar person, I didn't... You know, hang out and Did you of
12: intend it. to open it for gay people, or did that just sort of happen?
13: No, that just sort of happened. The, the intention of Diana's Club, which was a small bar that had a pool table and sawdust on the floor, and about fifteen steady older white folks that had been drinking there for twenty or thirty years—that's uh, the clientele that I inherited. My intention was to have a supper club. And they had live entertainment there in the downstairs. Years before then, it was nothing but, like I said, a pool table and, and sawdust on the floor when I took it over. So, supper club, gay bar? Not really. Oh. We, we've older gays then, and and those that didn't hang out at the clubs would go to state clubs, you know, for the entertainment. So it was going to be a place without. Uh, brand on it, but needless to say, shortly after I arrived, you know, everybody says, they there. <laughs> "Well, is it just because all your friends came, or friends and anybody?" Yeah. You know, we used to have this saying when you to you know, open something or you were having a special event, and they said, "Telephone." Telegraph, tell a sissy. So,
12: <laughs> <laughs> it that take, was a slow burn. It took me a second.
13: <laughs> <laughs> it didn't take long for the word to get out, which was fine with me because I didn't
11: have to pretend anymore. When well, this uh, is on Pico and okay. two blocks east of French. Oh, okay. Pico okay. And Norton. Okay. I
12: mean, when did you realize that this had gone beyond a club and became kind of a community center?
13: It kind of evolved without me really forcing the issue or whatever mm-hmm. once I opened the uh, upstairs which was official catch-one and it became an official gay and lesbian spot then folks came and then eventually because of the sexual revolution that had just preceded that it was just kicking off then it became that place where folks wanted to deal with political issues economic issues so one of the first things that happened was there was a black gay men's, uh rap. They used to call it rap groups. They, from then on, there was United Lesbians of African Heritage
11: and AA meetings. And, and what happened to your original clientele? Did they just stop coming or did they keep coming anyway?
13: Mm-hmm. Some of them stopped coming immediately. Like I said, it was just a, a handful of them. And what did amaze me, there wasn't a lot of things to amaze me, But what did amaze me was the fact that there were some that stayed. And not only did they stay, started to integrate. So I had these older, and when I say older, I'm talking about 70s and 80s (laughs) and, and that kind of Caucasian folks dealing with the younger black clientele.
11: Now, I know how important bars are to a lot of gay culture. Did you find that you had a lot of young gay people coming in and... Finding a home there, and and you became sort of a godmother to a generation. Mm, I I was just called that last night. (laughs) Oh no!
12: I've heard this more (laughs) than once about you. Okay, (laughs) claim it. Yes.
13: (laughs) Yeah, Phil Wilson, who was a leader in the the AIDS community, anyway, and has been for a long, long time. He also started a group called uh, the National Black Gay and Lesbian Leadership Forum, which goes back to what you were asking about, the other groups that came out of the early days of the Catch One.
12: It's funny, because I know that you've been involved in the HIV crisis. You've been involved with gay youth, and you've been through the crises of our community. But I can't imagine that you were thinking when you were opening up your club that this was what you were going to do. Did you ever kind of think, wait, I didn't sign up for all this. (laughs) uh no in fact i always felt that
13: it was my privilege my honor to have been chosen by the universe or whatever to be in a position to be able to do that it was something that i felt needed to be done and it fed right into well, my personality i I never had kids of my own. And so when I could say, oh, yeah, I have about 50 or 60, somebody asked me, you have kids? Yeah, about 50 <laughs> or 60, the <to> last count. <laughs> and about 20 something grandchildren. So it fed into that instinct of my wanting to be a mother and caretaker anyway. It came to you. Uh-huh.
12: You sort of sowed the ground and it grew yeah. and it came to you. To makes right? my metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Before you
11: gave it a place to find a home and grow, where did gay black culture go before you opened your bar? Because it certainly wasn't invented in 73.
13: No, there were some bars downtown that were pickup bars. And there were smaller clubs in in L.A. City. And there was one in Inglewood called Papa Bear's. And there was a club further down on Crenshaw called Centerfield. There were several clubs already yeah.
11: going going on. You were the respectable establishment?
13: <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. And also, you know, we have a tendency to flock to what's new and what's different. And then once folks came to the new spot, then it usually killed, you know, some of the smaller ones. Unfortunately, people would stop going to them and just come to my place. When and,
11: I read and you had kind of a celebrity following there, like Sharon Stone at her peak could go to your club. And um, nobody would hassle her. Right. As I
13: told her, because I had the privilege of meeting her and talking to her, and she was saying that she could go in there and nobody bothered her. I said, I no, because, you know, the gay guys felt like they were the
11: stars, <laughs> know. you know, <laughs> and probably wondered why she didn't ask them for their autograph. And did Madonna do a release party there? Yeah, she I did. Mean, it was big. Yeah, yeah.
13: Madonna was a regular before the release party, though. And, oh. and in fact, she hadn't been there in two or three years. And I was really, really amazed and honored and fabricasted in mm-hmm. any other word that you can think of to describe what I felt when she sent the word out that she had selected our club of all the ones in the world to have this record release party.
14: I want to be
12: clear, though, you didn't just run a club. This did turn to a community center, but this also was the beginning of you doing work to help with substance abuse and opening up a center. And did you identify a need? What prompted you to take it to the next step, to start doing work beyond just running that club and... Running other organizations and businesses, probably just listening to the people, and then getting or having a sense about
13: what was needed, and and uh, what I would want to. What
12: were you seeing to. the need at the time? What were the needs that you were noticing? Initially, just a place where they could come and be who they were, and
13: at the time it was Studio One, which was the, the big gay disco that folks wanted to go to and and they weren't welcome there so to have as big a space and of course it wasn't nearly as elaborate because i didn't have that kind of money but Mm -hmm. but we had the space and we had the this music and folks could come and be themselves and not have to worry about being harassed and acting any differently than they would you know, if they had, were at a
11: house party. What were the demographics of the crowd like through the years? Did, I mean, I assume they all started out kind of young. And did they stick with you in age along with the bar? Or was mm-hmm. there always a big turnover and you had new faces all the time? or On the contrary, we were 21 and over. Mm-hmm. And
13: like I said, there wasn't a place for some of the elders, especially professional guys, the dentists, the doctors, the judges, the lawyers, the teachers, the principals, the preachers, I wasn't a place where they could go, where they could maybe be underground and, and not recognized because it was 21 and over. And so I had... Folks, from the very beginning, that were from twenty-one to seventy-five or eighty.
11: So, Gabriel, you can meet a doctor. Sign me up. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, for serial dentists. Your name and judges for
12: sure. Jewel Tice Williams, truly one of our LA heroes, and keep going. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. <laughs> keep going. Thank you, Thank you so Appreciate much it. for coming.
2: Although she sold Jewel's Catch-1 in 2015, the bonds made there will never be broken. OMG, there's still time for a last word. And tonight, that's a gay history improv from Kerry Gibson and Tony Curry.
9: The year, 1977, the right to decency rally. The issue, can the state of Indiana arrest homosexuals? and put them in prison. The Speaker, Miss Anita Bryant.
14: God hates homosexuals, and God wants homosexuals punished. If man will not punish homosexuals, then God will punish man. In fact, the drought in California was a result of the state being more tolerant of homosexuals than other places in the country.
9: Miss Bryant, are you saying the presence of homosexuals causes droughts? Yes. Then would it be possible if a region is experiencing floods to stop the rain by bussing in a lot of homosexuals?
14: Yes, that would work.
9: This is Walter Cronkite. And that's the way it was. So, yeah, I'm over the part where I'm worried about losing my job. But I'm not over the fact that these people have so much hatred for me.
14: I'm African-American, Christian, lesbian. It's easier, I think, for people to relate to me if they think they're talking to another heterosexual person. So I do my best to get rid of any language where I self-identify as lesbian. I just don't talk about it. It's economic for me. I want to hold on to my job.
9: I work with combat vets at the VA. I went into the Coast Guard while I was still in high school. I really loved it. I always wanted to go into the officers' corps, but because the deadbolt on my closet door came off in my personal life, I was always afraid of being found out.
14: It sucks. It's hard enough being African American in this country, and now it's even harder being African American lesbian in this country. It sucks. In
9: the military? Don't come out unless you want to get kicked
14: out. I walk into a restaurant and people stop and stare. And of course, I'm the stereotype, the short hair, I wear pants. I am just tired. I wonder what it is like to live without a label.
9: It's so extremely heartbreaking. Don't come out unless you want to get kicked out a law that mandated silence and celibacy. The military, the largest employer in our country, is able to fire someone for their sexual identity. It's just wrong. The year 1998. Laramie, Wyoming. The issue, the torture and murder of a young gay man.
14: Matthew Shepard died Monday morning, surrounded by his family. At 12.53 a.m., his heart failed as he lay comatose and on life support. Tortured and brutally beaten, Shepard's skull was smashed with a gun butt. He was left to die lashed to a rough-hewn fence in an isolated wind-blown field. He remained there, alone, conscious, for three days in near-freezing temperatures before being discovered. After her 21-year-old son's death, Judy Shepard at a news conference said, Go home, give your children a hug, and don't let a day go by without telling them you love them.
2: And that's the way it was. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm David Hunt. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you're interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, like I first did in 1981, email stevepride at stevepride.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also, Catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, Castbox, and Pocket Cast. Good night. I'm
5: beautiful in my way, cause God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born.
12: your
5: truth in the religion of the insecure I must be myself, respect my self-respect track baby I'm Roxy and we're from Bad, Bad Romance. Romance and we're kicking off our national tour coming to a city near you. First up, Chicago. Chicago! So come check us out at BadRomanceShow.com and we'll see you later. Hi, I'm Caitlin. I'm Carissa. And I'm Roxy. And, and we're from <laughs> <laughs> okay Okay. <laughs> I'm Carissa and I'm Roxy. And we're, we're from Bad... romance. That uh, romance. <laughs> coming soon. We're our first. Hi, <laughs> <start. laughs> I am Caitlin. I'm Carissa and I'm Roxy. And we're from bad, bad Romance. And we're coming to a city near you. Our first stop is Chicago. Chicago. So come visit us at badromance show.com. I'm coming to a city near you. Ah. Oh. To in, so oh, we're gonna need a new backup here, guys.